Please remain standing as you're able. Our scripture reading is from Luke's Gospel, chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. At the conclusion, I will say, this is the word of the Lord. Would you please respond with, thanks be to God. When Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. There, a centurion's servant, whom his master highly valued, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal the servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, this man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and he's built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you, but say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes. And that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Yes, please have a seat. Good morning. Hey, I'm Tim. I'm lead pastor here. It's really good to be with you this morning. Uh, Chris, thanks for reading. Band, thanks for, for leading us. Uh, great, great new song. You guys sound amazing. Can we, can we just thank the band for, for leading us this morning? Um, so, so good. I, uh, if you've got a Bible, find your way to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, verse 1 is where we're going to start. Um, I wanted to take just a couple minutes and... Uh, remind us and kind of review why it is that we are opening up the book of Luke week after week after week. If uh, you're familiar with scripture, you know that, that Luke is uh, in, in the New Testament. It's the third book, Matthew, Mark, Luke. Uh, if you've been around for any number of weeks uh, and you're not familiar with scripture, you may think it's the only book of the Bible that we ever read. Um, and that's, that's fine. We have been in it for some time. Uh, and there's a reason that we're taking our time just to walk through one book of the Bible in the pace that we are and kind of taking a look at virtually every verse that is written in there as we move along story by story, teaching by teaching through, through the book of Luke. And I, uh, I actually want to share two things that, uh, that happened for me last night that I think help explain why it is that we would take this amount of intention and time and walk through one particular book of the Bible. Uh, the first one is this. I uh, often on Saturday nights will check the news and just see, hey, what's gone on in our world? Is there anything dramatic, either good or tragic that has happened? I don't want to kind of wake up on Sunday morning and be surprised. Obviously, that happens at times as well because things happen late Saturday night. Um, but I often, it's just kind of a habit that I look at the news 
uh, Saturday uh, late afternoon or evening time. And uh, one of the websites that I pull up regularly to, to look at, I kind of bounce around for a number of them uh, just to get a, a take on what's out there. And the center article right on, on the top, big bold letters, the, the, the first big article of this website was a picture uh, of a pastor that I recognized. Uh, he's pastored a church in Atlanta, Georgia area for over 30 years. Um, he's proven himself godly and trustworthy, and so I was glad that he was on a, on a news site and saw that the title was how he was embarrassed at pastors and churches over the last couple of years. And he listed out explicitly, it was an interview that was recorded, and, and I read through a majority of it. Uh, and he said three things that he was embarrassed at. First was pastors and churches. Uh, he was embarrassed at them for their response to COVID-19. Shocking, right? Uh, the second thing that he was embarrassed by was pastors and churches' response to the George Floyd protests and riots two years ago. The third thing that he was embarrassed by was pastors and churches' responses to the 2020 presidential election. None of those surprise us. We have strong opinions about all of those. He was expressing how he was embarrassed by how people that have the same belief as him, the same, say, name of type of churches, uh, the same denomination, follow the same scripture, responded in such what he would say un-Jesus-like ways. And he, he articulated, I thought, very well and very graciously how people seem in their responses to those things to be concerned about things that Jesus was not primarily concerned about. We're taking our time to walk through the book of Luke because it introduces us again, reintroduces us, exposes us, reveals to us over and over and over who Jesus is. And in the culture in which we live today, in the time that we live, it is very easy to get focused on the church and how the church responds. And so we want to take time and attention to make sure we are really closely looking and familiar with and listening to who Jesus is and what he's calling us to because we can easily get distracted by how churches around our nation, around our world respond in very ways that are not like Jesus. And so we want to take our time to, to be learning regularly and coming back regularly to what scripture tells us, and in the book of Luke, who we see Jesus to be and how he behaves and what he calls us to. The second thing that I did last night, after looking at this, was Abby and I sat down and we watched the third episode of a Hulu show called Under the Banner of Heaven. Anyone watching that? Really? We're the only ones. Okay. Well, it's a real show. You can look it up right now. I'm not making this up. Under the Banner of Heaven is, I don't know how many episodes it will be. Um, we're on the third one right now, but it's a show uh, uh, created off of a book uh, by the same name, by an author named John Krakauer. And it's about a 1984 murder of a young mom and her 15-month-old daughter by two of her brothers-in-law that are all part of the same Mormon church. So we watched this third episode last night, and I'm getting increasingly uncomfortable of watching the portrayal of Mormonisms and Mormons, according to this book and to this show, of how, of how Mormons behave and talk. And what I'm uncomfortable with is that there is a lot of overlap in the way that I talk. And I'm not a Mormon. I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm a Christian. And yet they say a lot of the same things. They say it differently. It sounds different, but they refer to God as Heavenly Father. We say that sometimes. It's in our songs sometimes. They talk about the Bible. We spend a lot of time looking at and reading the Bible, and teaching from the Bible. They, uh, they talk about listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit. 
There's a lot of things that sound really familiar and I don't like it because I say some of those things and I don't want it, anyone to associate me with them or certainly that show or the violence that happened that's being depicted in this particular story. For somebody who doesn't know or hasn't studied scripture, it would be really easy to say Mormonism and Christians are kind of the same thing. And they're very much not. There is some overlap. But Jesus says that, that we're saved by his death and resurrection, by the grace that he extends to us, and there's nothing that we can do to earn that. That's the fundamental hope that we have is in that story and that truth that Jesus lived, died, and rose again, and invites us to come and know him and his Father, to know the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And we can't do anything to earn that grace and forgiveness and love. And that is a very, very different story and narrative and truth that Mormonism claims to. That there are many rules to follow, and once you break one of them, they're out and all sorts of other things that add to this book and are different than the teachings of Jesus. And so it's important and valuable that we spend time looking into God's Word and understanding it and taking it page by page and reading and being reminded of and challenged by and transformed by who Jesus is, what he's done, and what he's inviting us into. So, we are at chapter 7. We're starting in chapter 7, verse 1. We're going to read a great story together this morning. You just heard Chris read it. And we've been in this about seven months, so we're moving at a pretty slow pace. Now, there's 24 chapters in the book of Luke, so if our pace doesn't change, we'll take about two years to go through the whole book. I've never taught through a book that slow and that long before, and we've not done that as a church before, but I hope that it continues to draw us into the love of God and the hope that he's given us and how he wants us to live and behave in this world and be salt and light for Jesus. So that's why we're taking all this time to move through the book of Luke, and then when we finish that, we'll get into Luke's second book, the book of Acts, that tells us all about the church and who we're to be in this world. So let's do this. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to jump in uh, today to the 10 verses of the story that we're looking at today. So would you pray with me? God, as we have already declared today, we know that you are here and that you're with us and that you're good and that you love us and that you see us, that you are powerful, that you have created everything in this universe, and you invite us to be good stewards of it and to love you by valuing what you have created. Holy Spirit, you are here, and you are active, and you are moving, and we invite you and give you permission to work and move in this space, and to stir in us, and to get our attention, and to speak to us, to challenge us where we need to be challenged, to comfort us where we need to be comforted, to convict us where we need to be convicted, that Holy Spirit, in this moment, in this time that we're gathered here, would you work and move? and change us. And Jesus, as we've declared already, as we've sung, that you are our Savior, and that you are, as we just sang, that you are who you say you are, that you are King, that you are Lord, that you are Savior, that you are Rescuer, that you are Redeemer, and that you want to be all of those things for each and every one of us. And so would we surrender ourselves more to you, to your authority in our lives, to your goodness in our life, and to your grace. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. 
As we look at this story today, I want to start at maybe a, a place that, that doesn't seem uh, necessarily obvious, and, uh, but there's a, a very clear reason why I want to start here. I want to start by reading our uh, kind of to date, the best words that we have to describe what God is calling us to as a church. You can call it a vision statement or a vision of our dream of what we think God wants to do in and through us as one particular church that is one of many churches across our city and nation and world. But these are the words that God has given to us, to how we describe what God's leading us to. We, we say it this way, in a, in a city known for self-reliance, loneliness, and cynicism, we are compelled by the love of Jesus to live distinctly different lives. And we will contribute to a movement of courageous and resilient disciples who are formed by God's word, empowered by the spirit, and sent by Jesus. And we put a number on this one. By 2025, that is very hard to read. By 2025, we'll identify, equip, and commission 500 people who break barriers, love neighbors, and uniquely contribute to more of God's kingdom coming in the Portland, Vancouver metro area. We dream of a day where every cynic knows the Savior, the lonely find a family, and every activist joins God's mission. Those are very valuable and carefully chosen words for us. I want to point us to two parts of this um, in particular for today. Um, the first is that in the first line, uh, distinctly different lives. That God's called us to look and be different kinds of people. If we follow Jesus, here, this, is just, this is just how this works. When somebody follows Jesus, their life looks different than those who are not following Jesus. When somebody says, I know Jesus, I've encountered him, he's changed my life, he's woke me up, he's brought me back to life, we look different, so distinctly different lives. And this, the second one is this, that will contribute to a movement of courageous and resilient disciples. This might be different in a different region or a different point in history or a different place in, the, in our nation right now, but to be a follower of Jesus in the Portland, Vancouver metro area, in the Pacific Northwest in general, to be a follower of Jesus requires courage and resiliency. This is no surprise to any of us. There is not an abundance of people hanging around us saying, yes, follow Jesus and live the way he wants you to live. Like we don't walk into our schools and that's just abundant. We don't find ourselves in a workplace that is just like, oh, everybody's rooting for us to make decisions that would honor Jesus. We have to be courageous and resilient. So there's a particular kind of disciple that God is seeking to form and make in our church and in other churches around our area. That's courageous and resilient disciples. And when we say disciple, one of the things that we mean at a core of what we understand the Bible calling us to be as disciples is this, that we would hear and know the voice of Jesus and then we would respond. That we would hear from Jesus, that we would hear the prompting of the Holy Spirit in our life. And then we wouldn't just hear it and acknowledge it and celebrate it, but then we would act as if that's Jesus' voice. We would act as if he is true and alive, and then he's calling us to do something, and we would behave in a way that resonates with what he's saying to us, that we would obey, that we would hear his voice and respond. When we say follower of Jesus, that's part of the core of what we mean. And yes, there's other parts that believe in, in the story, the good news of the gospel, that we, we know Jesus, we spend time with him. There's a lot of other things, but at, at its core, that's part of what it means, is to hear the voice of Jesus and then to respond. That's the story that we see in that, throughout the New Testament. It's a story that we see throughout followers of Jesus throughout history, that they're responding as if they're hearing him, following, responding to his teaching in scripture, responding to his voice as he speaks to other wise people and counsel, speak to him directly, learn to hear the prompting of the Holy Spirit and respond. 
It's a core part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus right now, today. We find ourselves in the place of Luke, in the book of Luke, at this place between the end of chapter 6 and the beginning of chapter 7. And where we've just come through chapter 6 is hearing from Jesus. We just heard him teach for a whole chapter. We call it the Sermon on the Plain. Others have called it, we didn't call it that. Others have called it that Sermon on the Plain. It parallels a lot of the longer version in Matthew's Sermon on the Mount. It's a different teaching. There's a lot of overlap. Jesus said the same things over and over and over. But we've heard from Jesus, love your enemies. This is what it means to be blessed by him. And, and woe, be careful of these things. To not to judge others. Um, that we fix our lives, we behave as if his is true, and we fix our lives on that, and that's a firm foundation. We've heard these things, and then we pivot into chapter 7, and have we just spent five weeks on the things that Jesus has said in the Sermon on the Mount that he's taught, his voice, and then what we're going to see in the next five weeks is response to that, of what it looks like to respond in faith to the things that Jesus has said, and we're going to see these amazing stories of faith in the next five weeks. Here's some of what we'll see. Faith is a uh, in these five stories of faith, what the, what the presence of faith looks like and what the absence of faith looks like. We're going to see some stories of that. The second thing is that we're going to see that faith involves humility, gratitude, and service. That'll come through these five stories that we see. And the last one is that there's no ethnic or gender hierarchy in Jesus' invitation. As Jesus pursues people and invites them to follow him, as he teaches people and invites them to follow them, that there's no ethnic or gender hierarchy, that everyone, that Jesus is actually, one of the things we see in that point in history, is that Jesus is for the outsider. He was then, he is today. There's no hierarchy. Everyone is invited equally to follow Jesus. For, for us in the culture and the time that we live in, that might sound obvious and seem like it doesn't even need to be stated. But for a reason, we have it time spent, pages spent in Scripture, reminding us of that, calling us to that. So, Let's do this. We're going to read this story, walk through it, and see what it is that God's calling us to. There's 10 verses, and uh, it is, it, there's, a, there's some uniquenesses in this story of faith that we haven't experienced before as we move through the book of Luke. One is that it's a miracle story that's not about the miracle. I don't know if, you've, if, you've, if you caught that as Chris read through it. It's a, it's a story of a miracle that's really not about the miracle. You think if somebody was raised from the dead, if somebody who's never walked before could walk all of a sudden, if somebody who was blind can see, if somebody was sick with leprosy and Jesus heals them, like that would be a really big deal. And it is, but that's not what this story is focused on. So it's a miracle story that's not about the miracle. And the other thing that we're going to see is that Jesus, Jesus gets emotional. It's beautiful, but we actually don't have that many throughout the book of Luke. Luke is a doctor, he's a physician, and he's taking careful time to go back to, to eyewitnesses to write this long book, 24 chapters, all about Jesus. And he's taking time and care to do it. And there's not too many moments where he chooses to reveal some of Jesus' emotion, of how Jesus responds emotionally to things. And what is it that Jesus responds emotionally to? But we're going to see Jesus get emotional in this story. It starts this way. When Jesus had finished saying all this to the people, so the Sermon on the Plain, when he had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. There a centurion's servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. Centurion is a, is a, a, um, is a person in the, in the Roman army who's got a place of authority roughly over a hundred. Centurion, one hundred of a hundred soldiers. He's stationed in Capernaum, and uh, he is either Roman uh, by ethnicity or some other uh, ethnic line that is not Jewish. So he is not Jewish, and he's there in a Jewish uh, town, 
And he's got this place of authority over a hundred soldiers. He's a person of privilege and of power and authority in Capernaum, and he's not Jewish. He's, he's another ethnicity, likely not even Roman, but from someplace else. He, um, when they were in outposts like this, they were often mercenaries that the Roman um, Empire had hired and trained and put in place there. So he's probably not even ethnically Roman, but he's certainly not Jewish. And he's, he's unique. Like he's got this, uh, at that time, if a servant or a slave was ill, and it says he's ill to the point of near death. And we see this story also in Matthew. And in Matthew, we're told that he's paralyzed. So he's sick and probably paralyzed and about to die. So on the, on the servant-slave value scale, he is rapidly approaching zero. And what that means is that it would be okay, everyone would have just been totally okay with this, except for maybe the, the servant's wife, for him to be put to death. That, that sounds outlandish, but that's just, that was the norm. That if you were in a place of authority, such as he was, a centurion, that you have had slaves, somebody was in your, kind of your household that worked for you, that got things done, and they couldn't get things done anymore, it just made sense that you would, you would put them to death. You didn't have to take time to care for them, resources to care for them. You didn't have to feed them any longer. Nobody else had to pay attention to him. He was just gone, and you'd replace him. And that sounds absolutely brutal and ridiculous, but that would have been okay. This centurion did the exact opposite. In fact, it says he, was, he valued highly this servant. The word in another translation is, is dear. He was dear to him. He prized him. He honored this, this servant. So much so that he went to this work to find Jesus and say, hey, let's call Jesus over to help heal you and get you back to health. Verse 3, the centurion heard of Jesus and sent some soldiers of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him. This man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. I mean, they just, you see him working there, right? Like, he, he loves the nation. He's been good to us. And he's built us this great building where we worship God. So Jesus like, help us out by helping him out. He deserves this. The, the word is worthy. He's, he's worthy of you doing this, Jesus. Which is interesting because the Jewish leaders, the elders that went to Jew, Jesus probably didn't, weren't the biggest fans of Jesus. They're stuck in this place where Jesus is threatening their authority a little bit as elders in Capernaum because he's got a following. But yet, they don't believe that Jesus is God's son. They don't believe that he's really anything special. But... He does have this ability to heal people. And so they go to him and say, hey, you can heal people. We've seen you do it. Will you come and do it for this guy who has helped us out? He's been good to us. Things are going well in Capernaum because the guy in authority, the centurion, likes our nation. Why? A non-Jew in a position of authority in the Roman Empire likes our nation. We don't know, but it's going well for us. So much so that he built us this building. And maybe kind of the cynical side is that, well, yeah, if he builds the Jews a building and that keeps the peace in there, that makes sense, like financially to invest in the building. But we don't get that sense at all that that's what's going on. We actually get the sense that this is a pretty good guy. And so the Jews are advocating for him. And he's, he's wise or shrewd. He's not going directly to Jesus. He's actually going through some Jewish leaders to go talk to Jesus. Next verse says this. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. 
but say the word and my servant will be healed. And then he goes on to explain his thinking behind this. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one go and he goes and I tell this one come and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. The centurion is just saying, I, I know how power works. I, I'm under authority. I've got, a, I've got a guy above me, a rank, and when he tells me to do something, I respond by doing it. I, I do it. And that works for me with the guys under my, my uh, authority. I tell them what to do. I tell this one go, and he goes. I tell this one to come, and he comes. I tell them this one to jump, and he says how high. Like, they do what I say. I say something, and they, they do it. And so I get how authority works. And what he's really saying, and that is not just authority, but what he's saying is, I understand how power works. I understand when you're in a position of power and you're above somebody else, you have more power than somebody else, that your word then goes. It, it's what happens. And he sends, sends these guys to Jesus. And there's a, there's a kind of a cultural wrinkle to this, where Jesus, as a, as a Jewish man, in Jewish tradition and teaching at the time, would not have been able to cross the threshold and come into the centurion's house without being made unclean. So because he wasn't a Jew, the centurion was a Gentile, to come into his house would have been going into an unclean place. And so for Jesus to come in and heal the servant in person could have put Jesus in an awkward place. And so the, the centurion is saying, we don't even want to deal with that. And we don't have to because I know what you can do. I believe, I have this faith that you are who you say you are. That, that you are the one who can heal. That you are God's son. That you have a power that is unique that no one else has. And because that's who you are, you have the authority to just say it. And this will happen. My servant will be healed. Not only does he have that thought, but he puts it into action by sending other servants. And so Jesus encounters this second message from this second group of servants on his way. And it says that he's near the house, so maybe he can see it up the road, or it's just in the distance and he's almost there. And these other guys come and say, hey, don't bother coming the last leg of the journey to the house. Don't come up the long driveway, whatever it might be. Right there, you can, you can heal from a distance. Verse 9, when Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd, follow him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant there. Found the servant well. The emotion in Jesus is in the word amazed. That Jesus was amazed. So Jesus is walking and he's got, he's got his following. He's got people that are following him. That's how, that's how it works. When you're a rabbi, they, they walk behind you. They don't clear the road in front of you. They walk behind you. They follow the rabbi. And so Jesus is walking to the centurion's house, and he hears this second group of messengers. These servants say, hey, you don't even need to come. You can just say it. I understand how authority works. I understand how power works. You can just simply say the word, and my servant will be healed, will be moved back to health because you decide it. And Jesus turns around and he says to all those that are following him, I've not seen such great faith as this in all of Israel. Of all of the Jewish people that I've encountered, of all of you standing here right behind me, none of you have the kind of faith that this guy has. None of the religious leaders 
None of the elders that encountered me a few miles away first, not, not them, nobody, I haven't seen it anywhere else. No, nobody has such great faith as this. And it says he was amazed, he was astonished, he was marveled. Do you know the things that, that you're astonished at when, you, when your chest kind of feels like it's on fire a little bit or maybe as a parent your chest swells because you're proud of your kids and your, your eyes well up a little bit and you, you have this sense of like, um, well, I, I don't know, I, the way it works for me is like, um, I, I get really grateful or thankful or surprised at some really good thing and then I immediately enter a mental battle of don't cry, don't cry, don't cry. Some of you don't have that. You just immediately start crying. I wish I could function like that. I'm on my way there as I'm getting older. I'm growing. But I wish I could just let the tears flow. I wonder if Jesus actually had tears streaming down his face because he's so astonished and he's so excited and he's so marveling at this guy's faith because this guy was an outsider. This guy was good to build the synagogue but he wasn't good to be in the family of God because he wasn't Jewish. And Jesus is picking an outsider and watching how he behaves, his actual actions, not what he thinks, but how he moves to respond to what he thinks and believes. And his act of faith, his behavior of faith, brings Jesus, I think, to at least welling up with tears of saying, this is what I'm looking for. This is what I'm calling people to. This is what you all are to emulate this kind of great faith. And we say, yeah, but he's got, a, he's got a servant he wants well, and so he's gonna try you, and then if you don't work, he'll go to what, another doctor, another rabbi? And Jesus says, no, 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 no. He's not trying this with anyone else. There's no one else that he says, from a distance, not being close, not being in the same room, can transform this man's life physically and make him whole again. This is a great and unique faith because he understands the authority that I am walking with and teaching with and healing with and living with. And he understands the authority that I represent, that my Father in heaven has given me this authority and I'm healing. And he believes. The centurion is acknowledging Jesus' authority. One of the things that it means for us as people of faith, if we are gonna believe in Jesus and listen to his teachings and know who he is and be in relationship with him, and to respond to him, whether it be uh, a, a way that we say, yes, I believe, whether it says we are, we are in agreement intellectually, whether it's even a, a, an emotional response that we say, this is who I know Jesus to be and what he says, but it is then followed with a response, a behavior, an action, that we take a step of faith. And that faith involves acknowledging Jesus' authority. It is a rather simple and basic an even feeble level of faith when we just agree with Jesus. That's a start, but it's, but it's just the beginning. Jesus is pointing and saying, this is the kind of faith I'm looking for, of when you take a risky step that demonstrates what you believe. When we acknowledge Jesus' authority in our life, it is demonstrated by the way that we behave, not just the way that we believe. I've had two people in the last eight days share stories with me of how they have heard or sensed or been aware of the Holy Spirit speaking to them in some way, and they've changed their life. One person, it was coming back to faith that they had grown up following Jesus and in a, in a home and a family that was pursuing Jesus and then walked away from that um, after high school and then in early young adult years, had an encounter with the Holy Spirit and responded and said, it was, it was out of the blue and it was in this moment and described the details of it. 
and came back. Another one was on the radio hearing some things over and over and over again and saying, I, I've not been following Jesus for quite a long time and I'm going to turn and begin following him again. I have a friend who, who lost his job, who lost his job because he made a decision not to compromise his integrity. His integrity, who had been, which had been formed by Jesus and what Jesus was calling him to and the kind of man he was calling him to be. And so in his place of employment, in his career that he had been in for well over a decade and was moving up the ranks and got to a place where a decision was made and the whole crew decided we're going we're gonna to tell this story instead of the truth. And he was the odd man out. And he said, I'm not going to go to my superior officer and, and say this. I'm going to be the one-off. I'm not going to go with you guys and agree to all of this. Blackballed by those he worked with, demoted, and then quickly fired. That he lost his job and ultimately lost that career because he said, I have an authority in my life that is higher than the peer pressure that you're putting on me, that is higher than you as my commanding officer in the police force. I'm going to say that I have a higher authority that is, that is Jesus Christ, and it's going to cost me, but that's the authority that I have. For some of you, you, you are in classrooms or in schools or places of work where language is a determining factor for how much you're accepted, that you use certain terms and words and you, you play the part and you, you get accepted or you choose, I'm not going to talk like that. I'm not going to use those kinds of words. I'm not going to use that thing. I think it's crude. I don't think it's honorable. And that, that doesn't change what... what how old you are, what grade you're in. The words change, but the core doesn't change. There's a sense of, I, I want to belong and I want to I go along. I want to fit in. It's going to cost my reputation. It's going to cost the way that other people treat me and view me. But I have a higher authority than my peer group or my coworkers. When we acknowledge Jesus as our higher authority, it is this radical and significant step of faith. And as we take one and as we take another one, what will happen, it is guaranteed, is no surprise, that we begin to look distinctly different than those around us. We stand out. We don't fit in. Jesus is pointing to a man then, and he's pointing to you and I now, that when you acknowledge my authority, and when you make decisions based on my leading and my speaking into your life, it will be costly at times. You will look different, and people will see that you follow somebody else and not the crowd or not the culture. You will look different. This is the kind of faith that Jesus was celebrating and talking to those that he was following, his first disciples, the people that were supporting him, the people that were walking with him day in and day out and hanging out for his teaching on the plane and watching him heal people. And he said, this is fantastic. Here's the next step. Be prepared to take costly, risky steps of faith where you lose something but you gain my amazement. You gain me marveling at you. You gain me welling up with tears because I am proud of the way that you are obeying my voice among all of the other voices. We come to the communion table on a regular basis. Almost every single week we gather. As we go today, this morning, whether you're at, at home watching or at another time and you're practicing communion when, when you do, or whether you're here in this room right now, as we go to the table and we're reminded and we see visibly before us the story told of Jesus' body broken and his blood shed,
of the cost that he paid for us, would we collectively together ask the question, what is this step of faith that Jesus is calling me to today, tomorrow, this week, at this point in my life that both acknowledges his authority in my life but could also prove costly in the world in which we live. Jesus, as we come to your table, we come with a sense of, of courage. We come with a sense of calling that we, we want to follow you and we want to obey you. We come with a sense of you are who you say you are, that you're good, that you're powerful. And we want to come with a sense of your authority in our life that we would look distinct and different, that we would be identifiable as your disciples. And so would you help solidify that courage deep in our heart, that it would be present in us, not just here in this moment, but as we step out into the rest of our week. Would you continue to build in us a resiliency that when we see so many options around us, that we would cling to your voice first and foremost. For those of us here and now that are still learning to hear your voice, would you, would you encourage us in that this week? <laughs> would you give us a moment where it's so clear of what you're calling us to, that we know that it's you? And then would you follow it up with a confidence that only the Holy Spirit can give us in the moment to, to step out in faith I thank you for the work that you're doing in and through us and would you continue it and multiply it as we come to your table now. Would we honor you and worship you and cling to your grace that comes through your sacrifice on the cross and no place else. Amen.